Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest, Valerie Von Sobel, who is the founder and president of the Andre Sobel River of Life Foundation, is a survivor of the communist era in her native Hungary. And I have to say that I admire Valerie so much for being an incredible 80-year-old lady who presents herself in a way that is inspiring, full of life and creativity, but has also had her fair share of grief. And we're gonna talk about how to age gracefully, as well as how to handle the immense grief that we have in losing our loved ones. Welcome to the show, the incredible and beautiful Valerie Van Sobel. Darling, darling, Valerie, welcome to the show. Darling, darling, Kate. Thank you, (laughs) I feel welcomed. Well, I am just blown away by the way you look today. You are Parisian chic gorgeousness. And just looking at you makes me happy and makes me want to step up my game. I have to be honest. (laughs) You are just divine. When you are groomed and people come towards you on the street, they give you a smile while they are wearing absolutely nothing. So It's something that people like to look at, but not to emulate. And some people are actually angry, like, who is she? Why is she like that? Are you going to a costume party? Mm -hmm. And so it initiates a lot of strange reactions. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to be exactly like you when I grow up. From the moment I met you, I thought that. Has anyone told you that you are all grown up? Oh, I might look all grown up, but inside I'm really not all grown up. Well, that's an art form. <laughs> yeah. Valerie, you are an absolutely fascinating person and you have an incredible background and, and really just getting into who you are would be three podcasts long. So to summarize a little bit of your background, your life started off in the communist era and you escaped Hungary during the 1956 uprising against the Soviet regime. What memory do you have of that day that you fled? And who did you take with you? Well, it, it, it goes way back because I was born in the middle of the war. And my memories of hiding under a table for months is where I would say the impression about life began about a subliminal fear of a very young, like two, three-year-old child being protected. Protected from what? At that age, you don't know where the threat is. But even before I was two, three years old, I was given away for 18 months. A Nazi family, you never forget that you are a small child and everybody disappears from above your crib. So I was about 10 years old before I could sleep in a dark room. So I'm only going back to that because if you want to know the formation of character, it's really a little bit out of our control. 
what happens to us and what impression it makes and how it affects your character development. So it started with a lot of fear. And from time to time, this fear, when I had a lot of reason to fear, it hooked into that modality of being afraid, but not sure of what. I think they call it anxiety. Yes. So you find yourself in Canada. And I should add that now you are living in the most beautiful mountain home in Los Angeles, but you found yourself in Canada and you went on to become an actress. Is that right? <laughs> yes, which is actually much more interesting how how that happened than when it happened. Uh, yes, I, I was uh, in high school, which I've never graduated. I was in last year of high school. And of course, I took on my responsibility about my family very early on. So I was going to go to work in the summer. And my father took some pictures of me. And it was being developed at a Kodak shop. At that point, we used to take photographs. And so where it was developed, some French producer saw it. I was 16. And he offered a job in Mexico to do a Canadian airline commercial. So I didn't know which end was up. My uh, English was very halted. Even though I spoke it, I had a teacher in Hungary who was so antiquated that instead of saying, sit down, she taught me that you say, take a pew. And mm. so people would look at me, what, the, what does she mean by take a pew? I said, well, that's how I learned how to sit down. Mm -hmm. So I went to Indeed to Mexico City and did this commercial and then stayed for another year there making some atrocious movies. Mm -hmm. I even had my own talk show mm -hmm. and it was in English because my my Spanish was very un, unclear mm -hmm. and very poor. Mm -hmm. So there in Mexico City, the most famous agent from Hollywood saw me because he had a very famous wife whose name was Lupe Vela, who was a big Mexican movie star. And so Paul Conner was the agent. So I, he invited me to come and he had some things in mind. So eventually I came to Hollywood. I had enough money for four nights in a hotel. And I didn't tell him that, but they took me out every day on all kinds of interviews. And at the end of the four days, when I had to leave, I borrowed from someone another $60 to stay an extra day and nothing happened. So I said uh, to Mr. Conner, I said, what, what is next? I need to go home. And he said to me, don't call us, we will call you. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know at that point that it was a classic uh, fluff off. Don't mm -hmm. call us. We'll call you. So I get back to Toronto, and the next day I get a, a call uh, from Jerry Wald, who was the producer who had Marilyn Monroe under contract, uh, Paul Newman, everyone who in those days kept 20th Century Fox alive. So he said, come right back. And we want you to have a screen test. Mm -hmm. So it was very exciting and terrifying because not only have I not acted, but I had a strange feeling that I don't know how. 
But anyway, they put me in an awful bikini. And I say awful because they used to be those tall pants and long like a granny kind of Mm -hmm. a pant. It wasn't like a bikini pant. And there was this very nice man who read my lines with me. And at the end, I thanked him. And I said, are you an actor? And he says, yes. And he was very humble. It was Jimmy Stewart, which very likely your your audience is too young to know that he had four Academy Awards and really Hollywood history. So he humbly said, yes, I am an actor. Well, to make it short, I got the part co-starring with him. Mm. And it was terrifying because I had enough discernment to know that I know nothing. Mm-hmm. And when I look at that film that's called Mr. Hobbs Takes a Vacation, I shudder. <laughs> but people mm. seem to have liked it. I was very buxom. And I said my lines. And, and, and then 20th Century Fox went belly up. They mm. closed their gates. They went bankrupt because of Cleopatra. Ah, so I was yeah. here with really nothing. Not a dime. No contract. And no work permit, which was even worse because I had a green card to Canada. Mm -hmm. So is there anything more you want to know about this boring story? Well, I'm going to move on, actually, because you have had an incredible career and I want to paint the picture of that and then move on to what we really want to delve into today. And that is the beauty of aging, dealing with aging and also dealing with grief. And I know that you went on to get married, build a home, be a wife, be a mother. You had two children, a boy and a girl. And then something awful happened to you. You found out that your son, Andre, had a brain tumor and you lost him. I can't possibly imagine losing a child. I, like you, have lost my whole family. I've lost my brother, my mother, my father, my aunts, my grandmas. I mean, I've lost practically all of my family. All doors have shut apart from my daughter. I also know, Valerie, that when Andre died, your mother died shortly afterwards. And then your husband took his own life. Correct. The same day a year later, the first anniversary of Andre's death, yes. How did you possibly get through all of this? I don't think that I can articulately tell you that because I wondered at it myself. I was pretty much out of my mind, and I can illustrate that to you with a recurring dream that I Mm -hmm. used to have, that Mm -hmm. I was sitting next to my son. He was in his bed, very pale, and that I became a a snake, because I wanted to crawl away. Mm. I couldn't, I didn't feel competent emotionally, physically, mentally. And in this dream, I would get as far as the front door, and then I would shed my skin and come back because I had nowhere to run. And I didn't want to be anywhere else either. So this conflict at first was almost unsurvivable. I, I wasn't making much sense other than when I was on the phone from South Africa to Israel, where there was anyone who knew about a medulloblastoma. That's basically how I spend my days, 24 hours a day in his company or on the telephone with doctors. How did I survive it? I lost 62 pounds. 
I stopped digesting. And now that my foundation has helped 13,000 single parents, it's interesting because everyone has a different reaction. Others have gained weight. Others had breast cancer, a very large percentage of of women had breast cancer. I guess Mm -hmm. the child and the breast and whatever that means. But I have statistics on that that we created at the National Institutes of Health. We had a three-day think tank, and we came up with amazing statistics that were were always available, but they were... uh, they were not documented in this in this way. For example, eight out of ten families break up and get a divorce as a loss of a child. Mm-hmm. And these are phenomenal statistics because anecdotally they were always known, but now they are a fact. So out of these 13,000 families, uh, the reactions are completely different. The most unfortunate ones are that are those who just want to get back to life. They just want to go to lunch and forget, and that's how they see their survival. Mm-hmm. I, unusually enough, went into silence. I sat under a tree for three months. You can't digest this or process it, but what you can do is to hear yourself and not listen to your neighbor who says, oh, do you have other children? Oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. Or time will heal or any of those homilies yeah. that are so unhelpful yeah. that would have taken me out of this place where I had work to do. And the work was nothing. Silence. Yeah. Please leave me alone. Yeah. I definitely experienced something similar when I heard of my brother's death, who was just a year older than me. So we were Irish twins. I was actually in India at the time on a a mission trip. And the shock that I went into was, I mean, I, I I just don't even know how to explain the pain, the shock. I mean, there's different levels and different phases of grief, I think. But, you know, at some point I felt angry. I was shocked. I was numb. I was, I mean, I experienced absolutely every emotion. So I think people deal with it differently, but I do seem to remember I didn't want anyone to say those things to me, as in it will all get better, time will heal, you know, the classics. I just wanted to be left alone. No, it's actually you become allergic to it and and you feel that they are taking you away from your own survival by being polite and not knowing that place. And I really wish that no one will ever know that place. But I must tell you that between the shock you have received about your brother's death and to stand by helplessly for 417 days, neither of them is better than the other, but they are very different because the shock that you have received was emotional, stepping into your own eternity, mortality, and all of that. And I am telling you that while someone who wouldn't know this place that I was in would think, oh, but you had time to prepare. You can't Mm -hmm. prepare for the death of your child. You can't even really prepare for your own death because Mm -hmm. it is the unknown. And if you don't embrace the mystery, then you are wasting a lot of time Mm -hmm. on something that isn't Mm -hmm. helpful. I absolutely agree with you. And I think that, of course, for you, it was heightened because you lost everybody within a year. 
And, you know, you, you said something that really resonates with me, and that is you start to think about your own mortality. And especially when you lose your parents, again, I can't imagine losing my child. I, I just don't think I would want to live. And I would like you not to, because the odds are very much in your favor or in the favor of your listeners. The odds are still very good that it won't happen to you. There are no statistics for that because we don't know who will run over who on the street. But there is some kind of magnetism of the universe. You don't attract that which you fear if you can at all help it. And I'm not saying that you really can, but you do your best never to think about that because five minutes before you need it, you get something that is an indescribable state. It's not courage. It's uh, not acceptance yet. But something happens that makes you survive unless you decidedly choose not to. And many do. My husband did. Yes, as did my brother. And I, I, I also know so many people whose family members have committed suicide. And sadly, it's, it, it's on the up. It really is, especially going through this pandemic. Very much so. It is on the up. Now, I just wanted to touch base on the issue of aging parents, because it is now also a pandemic that we live in a world where people are living longer. I can't tell you the guilt that I had when my mother went into a home, assisted living home in England, and I was over here in America and when my brother was alive, we would have conversations nonstop about what do we do with our 80-year-old parents? And, you know, both of which were not in good health. And neither of us had the means or the mental capacity or physical capacity to be able to deal with that. And I know that so many people who've got aging parents really worry about this and don't know what to do and feel all sorts of guilt and stigma and taboos around it. Because, of course, in the olden days, it would all be families living together and it would be your responsibility to look after your mother, your father, your grandparents, and then the new babies that would come in and you'd all be in one house. We are in a different world now. Like I live halfway across the world than where my parents lived. So I'd love your thoughts on that. And what do you think the answer is? First of all, for the person who is the aging one, not from the vantage point of the family, mm -hmm. there is a huge embarrassment. Mm. My daughter says to me all the time, I've already told you that. Mm. And it creates the kind of guilt and the kind of wake up call 10 times a day when you stumble over words that you don't remember and I really thought with my very agile brain who never stops reading or writing or mm -hmm. using it or mm -hmm. out of a naturally born curiosity, I would ever have a memory problem. It started six months ago. And so you realize that you are more similar than apart from humanity. Mm. You think you are so special, you have pulled yourself up by your bootstraps a hundred times, and yes, I've got it, and suddenly you don't got it. Mm -hmm. yep. And that is uh, frightening. You don't know what's next. I am holding on to the independence that I would like to have till the day I die. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I think this is real because my father died when he was 87 and loneliness killed him for absolutely for sure. In losing his independence and being lonely took his life for sure. And I think, you know, we don't talk about aging as a society and it still has a taboo to it. And, you know, Valerie, I fell in love with you at first sight because, you know, I look at you and I see an 80-year-old woman. 81. Oh, 81. Okay. <laughs> you are living your best life. And, you know, I've been obsessed with you, actually, since the moment we met, because for anyone who can't see Valerie, she is this colorful, beautiful, porcelain-faced, not a line. We'll talk about that in a minute, why there are no lines. And, you know, if you go onto Valerie's social media and you see her Instagram account, she's this incredible influencer at 81 years old, rocking the outfits, rocking the art, being graceful and chic and traveling all over the world. And, you know, she's pursued by designers and artists to just who just want to dress you. I know all of that about you. And I guess why I'm saying this is we have to reverse somehow these taboos of life is over. You know, at 50, once menopause comes along, you say about losing your memory now just six months ago, my God, I can absolutely assure you that women going through menopause get fog brain and, you know, obviously stop being able to produce children. The stigma and taboos that are around that are disgraceful. And you, meanwhile, are living your best life, having had unimaginable tragedy that's happened to you, fueling your life with, with philanthropy through your organization, Compassion Can't Wait, and I'd love to hear more about that, and really using art, which I gather you do, as your sort of channel to happiness. And I, I, would, love to, I would love to explore that a little bit more, because you are definitely one of the color, most colorful people I've ever met. But Ageism is real. Inescapable. None of us got out of here alive. Going back to your father, if you wish, for a moment, when you say loneliness killed him, I think that's a curse that follows a man. Women are just wired differently. I have never had a date, and my, my husband now died 22 years ago. It's not that I didn't feel the need I just knew that I have created a, a substantial inner life that I would never want to mess up with mediocrity. And for a while, because of the organization, I was a national speaker and there would be a thousand people in the audience and lots of people would come up to the podium and ooh and ah, and then they would all leave. Not one has ever asked me for a cup of coffee, nor did I want to go with any of them. So I very early on chose that solitude and it has never harmed me. It's been a very rich life, but men don't do as well. Men kind of don't have the inner resource that we are born with in order to take care of children and family. They truly are classically the breadwinners and they basically escape from the home when uh, a cattle broke or, or when there is any kind of a disaster. I like solitude, but it doesn't suit everyone. And I never thought it would suit me. But after three years of COVID, it has begun to affect me in a very surprising way. I never felt depressed. 
I hike a great deal every day. I'm out in nature. I listen to tangles on my on my earphone while I hike. I am tuned to be happy. But something happened about six months ago that I don't know whether it's aging or whether the solitude actually got me to a place, not quite as deeply as your father, but definitely I think we are more social beings than I realized. Mm. Does that answer what you asked? Yes, I have more though, because I want to dig a little deeper into your jewelry, right? Because you have that in spades. Every post that you put up, you're wearing some other fabulous outfit and you're, you know, you're traveling and you're in Paris and you're here and you're there and, and you have this beautiful network of deep friendships that you can also see. And you, you know, you go to art openings and or have my own and your own. Yes. And so let's be honest, Valerie, most 81 year olds are not doing that. And I think there's a lot to be learned from how you've decided to pick yourself up after everything that has happened to you and now how you how you live. And and by the way, here's a here's a good question. What's it like to be an influencer? You are an influencer now. You know, you have a huge following on Instagram. There's a lot of women also sort of in your wake that are doing the same thing who I have been looking at and studying. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out. That's so funny. Yes. Yeah. No, I, it, you seriously are. I'm very flattered when that happens. Yeah. Uh, when that happens. And yes, many people post things that they are trying to copy what I look like. It's very flattering because it usually comes from young people. And I said, how marvelous that a young person would like to be groomed yes. and would like to have a style that they develop. So that's a wonderful thing. As for being an influencer, having 50,000 followers is sort of a joke when you think about a Beyonce who has 80 million. So it's a very relative and very subjective kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. It's just playing. What is not playing is how you really survive and how you set up your your own self-image. And that is, in my case, very deeply based in gratitude. And that sounds a little woo-woo and a little this and that, almost what they like to call new age. But if you can define gratitude for what, then you are closer to a real answer, mm. something that you can actually anchor your life on. And so gratitude for what there is. Mm. Mm. Gratitude for what is left. Mm -hmm embracing that and trying to put everything else in a box to be able to bifurcate your responsibility from your emotional geography and to put those that are really not, cannot be retracted. I cannot go back and revive my family. So what you can do is to be grateful for, for what there is. And continue to learn, mm -hmm. continue to have the curiosity, not to distract you, but to actually jump into new paradigms. So I would say yeah. gratitude, curiosity, and some discipline. You need to move. Yeah. I did yoga in 1960 before people knew how to spell it. I've always been very attracted with health. Mm -hmm. I've been a vegetarian for 55 years, a vegan for 10 
And I've always respected my body, which, again, men are not so good at. So imagine your father, who is kind of untethered without a family, without a wife, not taking care of himself because he he didn't do the homework. To me, this is very ingrained. Uh, Mm -hmm. As most women, uh, I shouldn't say most, because now there is an epidemic of, of bad food and overweight and... A lot of things that I had the privilege to ignore. But once it becomes your personality, you, you hang on to all that is optimistic. Mm-hmm. So, Valerie, you and I have talked about plastic surgery. You are very well turned out, as we have discussed. You are a real lady. You are chic. And you care about your appearance. You care about what you put in your body. And you, you're immaculate. When did you start thinking about the aging process and what did you go through to decide what you were going to do to, you know, turn the clock back? Well, it has to do with with my deep sense of aesthetics. Mm -hmm. I think plastic surgery is mental hygiene. If you don't feel like the person who is in the mirror, then fix it. In fact, fix everything that you are able to fix your home, your your job. Don't engage in things that pull you down, but always go up. Mm. So plastic surgery, I was seated next to a woman at a dinner party whose name was Catherine Deneuve, which I don't think everybody mm-hmm. will know. Do you? Yes, of course. Catherine yes. Deneuve, the great... The uh, great, the great Catherine Deneuve, and, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, the muse for Yves Saint Laurent. And I said to her, I said, you know, I don't know you. I'm going to be very rude. I know you had surgery because it was widely publicized. What age? Oh, she says, you must start at 42. Really? I said, okay, I'm 41. Mm -hmm. She says, get on with it. And I said, explain to me why. And she said that basically the lines settle in because of gravity. So the less you allow those lines to become part of your architecture, the better you are. And so at 42, I had a facelift and it was terrific. I thought it was just the cat's meow. And after that, I I did a lot of little things. Those who are a candidate, the best thing I've ever done was a peel. Mm. And I don't mean a little 15-minute lunchtime pill. I'm talking about the phenol pill, which is an eight-week recovery. And it literally takes 20, 30 years of you because all the sun damage, all the blemishes, all the the small lines that you can do nothing about just disappeared. It was a great deal of suffering. And I'm not going to suggest that to anyone. But for the rest, I would rather have plastic surgery than lunch. And it is very available now. It is. It is. And I think, you know, when we talk about taboo and stigma and aging and grief and all of these things hold the taboo, right? People still deny that they've had plastic surgery. And I admire you for saying, yes, I've done it. And this is what I've done. And I feel fabulous. I don't get people who deny their age or what they have done. I am one of those women that if you have spinach on your teeth, I will point it out. Or if you like my shoes, I will tell you where I bought it. Yes, I am exactly the same as you. So sadly, our time is coming up. I knew it would fly by. There's a million things I still want to talk to you about. But tell the audience about Compassion Can't Wait. 
And what is all that about? Thank you for asking, because it is my heart. I was very privileged when my son was dying. And of course, I thought I was the most unfortunate person in the known universe. But having done this work now for 22 years, to be without a partner and to have no money, and there are thousands of people on the street in the United States with dying children who have lost their jobs in order to make the choice to be with their child or or be at work. And they have several children. They have to keep a roof over their head. And it is a choice that I cannot imagine, having been with my child 24 hours a day. I had a cook, so God forbid anything that's not organic would come near him. I had a commercial air purifier. Everything that everyone would want to do for a child who is cherished and a child who is perishing. So it took me three years. I wanted to make Andre's name live on. And so I became a CASA, which is a a special court advocate for children. And I saw so much horror that unless you enter this arena, you really wouldn't even imagine. I have 13,000 stories And they are really science fiction. I will never write that story because it affects everyone differently and there is nothing to teach or to learn about that. But the mission has turned on to be be right on. The single parent is the most unfortunate in a situation that has no family. And there's a huge number of them. Well, um, everyone listening, please go to CompassionCan'tWait.org and you can read all about Valerie's incredible work. Um, Valerie, thank you for so much for sharing so much about yourself. And I just feel blessed to know you and be inspired by you. So thank you for being on the show. Well, you are very lovely, Kate. And I'm sure that from all the people you interviewed, you do make a difference because people walk away with a soundbite that they may remember the rest of their life. And it doesn't come necessarily from your wisdom or the interviewee's wisdom. It's just something that comes out if you are authentic, genuinely, and somebody may just need it at that moment. So thank you for your work. I'll see you soon, my darling, in Los Angeles. I can't wait to hang out. And I'm so glad you're feeling better. Valerie just recovered from COVID and she's back with a vengeance. So lots (laughs) of love, my darling. I will see you soon. Lots of love to you, Kate. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a dignity kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code PODCAST10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.